Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock service. We greet you in the name of, of Christ. We are in a sermon series called Guarding the Good News, the book of Galatians. We're looking selected portions of the book of Galatians, the, the, the Paul, letter by the Apostle Paul to the, the churches of Galatia. And uh, today we begin to look at chapter 3. We're going to look at a passage there. I want to talk about, uh, just in, in one sense, one, focusing on, on one particular verse that, that Paul's going to have here at the end of the chapter. But first let me say, you know, we're, we're in a world where there's just a lot of conflict. You ever notice that? There's a lot of conflict in our world. Um, and there's disunity in our world all around us, conflict and disunity. In fact, I believe it's, it's so common that sometimes we don't even get it. We don't even, we don't even recognize how much conflict and disunity there really is in our world. We think of the world being one now with social media and everybody's kind of united, but not so fast. Uh, just this week at, here locally the, at Douglas High School, two kids on the football team, supposed to be on the same team. You know, they had a big, big fight, big brawl uh, occurred there that, that made a lot of attention here. Supposed uh, to be on the same team, but disunity, conflict on the team. Also this week in, uh, in Texas, there was a, this, this student who brought a science project to school and uh, there was a clock and they thought it was a bomb and Conflict erupted, and they had to solve that situation. Conflict. And then probably you heard that there's debate on Wednesday night, and uh, uh, they called it round two, using boxing lingo, debate round two. And uh, I, I remember when debates were, you, went to, you listened to debates to see what this person's position was and this person's position was, but it ain't like that no more. Now everybody tunes in to see who's going to get at who and the conflict, who's going to diss this person, who's going to diss that person. And for three hours they go on and on and you don't really learn much about what they believe. But there's a lot of conflict, a lot of drama, a lot of show, isn't it? Conflict, conflict rules. In fact, maybe things are so bad that the Pope's coming over to try to fix this. I don't know. I hear that's, hap I hear that's happening this week. Now, many of you know that Dr. Martin Luther King had a dream, peace, harmony and, and unity and but many have basically trashed that vision that dream is unrealistic and unobtainable his dream though was grounded in the dream and visions of the old testament prophets who saw a day coming when there would be peace and harmony for jew and gentile living together working together serving together worshiping together where the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea that's the vision of the Old Testament prophets. It seems like the more diverse our world becomes, the more conflict we see. Isn't that the way it seems? Bruce Milne is a, is a retired pastor, pastored in Vancouver, pastored a multiracial church, wrote a great book I've been reading this week called Dynamic Diversity. This is what he says. He talks about the crisis of our world. The crisis of the third millennium is a crisis of community. The need for a new kind of persons united in a new kind of society. The great towering issue before us today, the issue that transcends all others and thrusts itself more and more to the head of every agenda for humanity's future survival and progress is this. How are we to live in peace, tolerance, in harmony with our different neighbors? Everywhere in today's world, diversity meets us. From the footpaths of our cities to the chat rooms of the internet, people are connecting today as never before across the great traditional divides of gender, race, ethnicity, gender, and generation. Unhappily, however, these contexts are often less than benign. The different stranger is commonly a threat to be resisted rather than a friend to be embraced. 
Threatening confrontations undermine all of the utopian dreams of human brotherhood. As a planet shrinks through the multiple forces of immigration, travel, electronic communication, and more fluid employment patterns, we find ourselves forced into contact to a degree never before experienced on planet Earth with those who are significantly different from ourselves. The family that has moved next door, the work colleague at the next computer, the student across the corridor in the residence hall, the occupant of the neighboring seat on a plane, the user of the next exercise machine at our, at our gym, amid the countless human connections that fill out our, all of our days, difference and diversity are increasingly prominent. Looney says, in, in today's context of in-your-face diversity, it's time to revisit the heart of the New Testament with its claim that in Jesus Christ, a new quality of human relationships has arrived and the gatherings of his followers in Christian churches represent a unique possibility of bridging the gulfs that separate. The world, in other words, has no answer to the deepening social crisis of our time, no means of holding together in living community the diversities of our burgeoning multifaceted cultures, and yet find such a means as it must for the global forces driving these diversities into ever closer confrontation are irreversible. Milne, a pastor of a multiracial church, now retired in, in Vancouver, leads us to our passage today because we're going to look at a passage in chapter 3 which talks about justification, but it moves us towards this issue of the diversity of, our, of the New Testament church. Let's look at uh, Galatians chapter 3, the rest of the chapter. We heard 1 to 14. We're going to now listen to 15 to 29. You can stand as we read this ESV translation. Let's have it on the overhead here. I'll read from God's Word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, one, no one annuls it or adds it to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant ratified, uh, previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could, be, that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God's word. You may be seated. God's holy word. The title is The Superiority of God's Unifying Grace. God's Unifying Grace, the superiority of that grace. I want to talk about the fact that the gospel of Christ is the, the only basis for true, lasting unity. It's the only basis for true, lasting unity. The book of Galatians, we've been, we've been looking at the last several weeks as Craig opened it up for us. So chapter 1, it, it's the one letter where Paul is absolutely upset, doesn't have a lot of greeting there. He's upset because the gospel's being distorted, and that ticks him off. He says, look, if, even if I came and gave a different gospel than one you learned, don't listen to me. Paul's upset. He's very upset in Galatians. He begins to talk about the fact that he got the gospel not from other disciples, but he got it straight from God. He spent time with God, and then he went to the disciples, and they confirmed, yes, that's the gospel. He said, my gospel came. It's not my gospel. It's God's gospel. Chapter 2, he continues in an autobiographical way because the issue is, is the keeping of the law, of being of, of kind of the Judaizing that, that, that adds keeping of the law to sim the simplicity of faith. And he had the conflict Paul talked about, uh, that Craig talked about last week between Paul and Peter at Antioch of, of Peter giving in, uh, not understanding the freedom that we have in Christ to not do all of the Jewish things, even though he was a Messianic Jew, we would call him. So Paul, Paul confronts him to his face because the gospel was at stake and the Gentiles were, were equal partners in the church. Then, so ch then chapter 3, we heard the reading of the, of, of the text. Um, he, the angle he uses, he says, not just my experience, what about your experience? You received the Spirit of God. How did you receive the Spirit? Was it because of what you did, keeping the law? No, it's because you believed. And so he, he talks about their experience, and then he turns the corner and begins to talk about the Scripture. He gives biblical rationale, he uses the Old Testament, goes back to Abraham, and says, Abraham believed God, and because he believed God, he was justified. He was declared righteous by God. Cited there, cited also in Romans chapter 4 the gospel, that he was declared righteous, he was justified. Then we have our passage today, and I want to focus on, on verses 26 to 29. We're going to look at some things in the passage, the whole chapter, but verses 26 to 29 are going to be, going to be the basis of what I'm going to say. I want to talk about three things. Embracing our identity as Christians, embracing our unity in Christ, and embracing our destiny in Christ. First, verses 26 to 27 is a call to embrace our identity in Christ. We are children of God. And the word children there, it, it's sons, but this, the generic word children, I think Paul's thinking in contrast to this term of being a guardian. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first let's talk about the law, because the law, you have to understand what's going on here with the law. He says two things about the law. Two things. He says the law is like a warden, and you're in prison. <laughs> a, a warden, you're in prison. It, the law confines you. It holds you captive. It imprisons you. It keeps you in bondage. Trying to keep the law is a burden. It's a pain to do that. Paul knows that. Paul was a Pharisaical Jew before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he knows that the law is a burden, and the law can be like a, a warden. It just won't, you can't get free from him. He also says that the law is like um, this, this translation says a guardian, like a, a governess or a nanny. That, that's the idea. Someone who, well, listen to Eugene Peterson. In Greek families that were well enough off to have slaves, they chose one of them, usually an old trusted slave, to be in charge of their child or their children who were from ages 6 to 16. This custodian, this guardian, went with the child to school to see that no harm or mischief came to him. 
He was not a schoolmaster. Schoolmaster was a King James translation. Bad, bad, bad translation. Not a schoolmaster. He had nothing to do with the actual teaching of the child. It was only his duty to take him safely to the school and deliver him to the teacher. See the picture? That, says Paul, is how the law works. It delivers us to the place of faith to Christ. The law takes us there. Once you're there, you don't don't need the law. You You don't need to be bound by law in terms of salvation. The Old Testament law, the Old Testament law. You know, Israel was a nation, and because they were a nation, they needed rules, uh, they need national rules. And there are some what they call civil laws in the Old Testament, Old Testament, how to run a nation. Uh, Israel was also, uh, they were a religious people. They worshiped God, and there are also what we call ceremonial laws, laws of ceremony. How big is the ark supposed to be, and how do you worship it, all that. Uh, but there also were people that had relationships. They were, they were a distinct culture of people. And so they had what, they had what all cultures do. They had morals. They had a moral law. In the Old Testament, you have all these laws. Now, some have categorized the moral law as the three usages of the moral law of God. The first usage is is, is what you could call a civil usage. It's a a general guide for all people. You know, the the, the law of God is for all people. Did you know that? There are aspects of God's law that are for all people. And and, and Romans tells us that, that God has put that in the heavens, and he's placed it in a human heart. Romans chapter 1 and 2, read those chapters. You know, and, and, and what this means is, for instance, that uh, it is good for human beings to be concerned about um, marriage, about, about love relationships, and not to, to, to go in and, and go between two people who are married. It is good for people, for human beings to respect the property of another person and not take their property. It is good for human beings to realize that you can't go on and on and on without rest, so you need to take a rest. It is good for human beings to say there's a God who... Who, who put this whole thing together, I ought to honor him. They call that worship. See, the Ten Commandments are specifically for Israel, but there's, they're for all people, and God has written them in the hearts of human beings and put them through it. And, 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 and the Bible says in Romans 1 that, that, that we suppress the truth and that we're without excuse. That's what the Bible, that's what the, the Scripture tells us. So, so that, that's the general guide for all people. Now, again, not all the, not all the little commandments for all people, but there's some general principles that are in the Bible for everyone. The second thing is, is what we have here. It's kind of a pre-evangelistic aspect of the law, where the, the law shows us that we fall short. All of sin didn't fall short of God's glory. We fall short of the law. You know, if, if we were hit roads that didn't say, didn't have any speed limits, you could drive as fast as you want to and not know that you're really violating the principle of, of, being, of loving your neighbor. So we have rules that say don't go past 60 or 65 or whatever. Don't go past 60. And, and, and if you violate like that, you're not just breaking your rule. You're not loving your neighbor, okay? That's what we do when we break, God, break the human law. It's the same way. It, it, law, the law tells us, uh-oh, I'm not living as I should. I'm not loving my neighbor as I should. The law leads us to be frustrated that we don't do it as we should, that we don't honor God as we should. We don't love our neighbor as we should. The law builds that frustration, and that frustration leads us to Christ. The second usage of the law. And then there's a third usage, a general guide for Christians, for believers, to follow God. And in Galatians 4, 5, and 6, he, he, he'll address that. We might see that in the next couple of weeks. But there's three usages of God's moral law. Now, Paul's point is simply this. When it comes to salvation and being justified, the, you know, the only, thing, the only usage of the law is to help you know that you need to be justified. You can't, be, you can't say, I believe in Jesus, and now I want to follow the law to be justified. No, that nullifies the believing in Jesus. It's faith 
in Christ alone that brings salvation. And so Paul is again making sure that they understand the simplicity of the gospel, that God sent his son to rescue us from our, from our sins, and Christ has done that work for us. And we believe in him and find salvation. Paul wants us to know that it is faith, not works. We're justified, declared righteous by God. That's a, a Habakkuk chapter 2, quoted several times in the New Testament. Uh, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. It's a declaration. In Galatians, earlier in, in Galatians, in chapter 2, he, he said, uh, we, we, uh, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and it, 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 that's simple. Faith alone, Christ alone. Someone has said that every unbeliever, every heathen in every religion is trying to earn his salvation as the Jews are. The only difference is that the pagan has no such clear knowledge. Judaism, in one sense, is just another religion. When you think about it, Judaism is just not, it's, 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 again, as Paul understands it here, because he was one, there's really only, there's really only two, two ways of trying to, to get to heaven. There's the way of your effort and the way of receiving the, the, the gospel of what God has done. And it is faith, not works, what Paul wants us to see. Then another thing he wants to see is, is that we are sons and daughters of God. We're, we're children of God. That's our, new, that's our new position because of Christ. Here's a question for you. When did you become a child of your parents? Unless you were adopted, it was at birth. Adoption comes in chapter 4, actually talks about adoption. But when did you become a parent? It was at birth. And here's another question. How much did you do to make that process happen? When you were born, how much did you do? I'm sure you did a little bit. But I bet there's some others who did a whole lot. This, this week, Tara and I, we visited uh, Wednesday, we visited uh, Joyce Chapman. Craig paid for her earlier. She, was in, she had this brain surgery. She was up and speaking. We, were, we marveled at God, did, 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 what God did. Anyway, so the Chapmans go back a long way with us. Even before I was a pastor at our old church, my first church, before I was a pastor there, uh, we, were, we were there, we were in a Bible study together one night, and Terry was very pregnant with Joshua, my first son, actually. It was a night, and we ate dinner, and we were going to have Bible study, and at dinner, John just made the comment, you know how John is, he said, uh, somebody looks like they're going to have a baby tonight. And Terry said, I don't know, I don't know, it was, you know, so... Then she said, after, when dinner, we had shrimp. She remembers this. Like, like, she, we had shrimp that night, good meal. And uh, at the end of the meal, Terry said, you know, I just don't feel right. I, just don't, I feel funny. He said, you need to go home. He said, well, I don't want to go. I'm with the Bible. Said, well, you need to go home. And, we, we, and so Joy says, you can stay here, but let me get some blankets for my sofa. I don't want you to break, your water to break on my sofa. You know how Joy says. So <laughs> Terry decided to go home. Let's go home. We went home and uh, went to G, dashed to GBMC and... Um, Joshua, was, Joshua, though, had some, he didn't want to come, if I can put it that way. He, he, got, he got halfway and didn't want to come, didn't want to do his job. And so the doctor, her, her, her Dr. Aronson was her doctor, and Dr. Aronson, she was a champion. She did a lot of work because it was 1.30 in the morning, and she wanted to do surgery, and there wasn't no one that, no anesthesiologist, and she needed an and she found an anesthesiologist, was doing something with somebody else. She said, I need an anesthesiologist. I remember she got, she got into it <laughs> because it was time for the baby to be born. And, and, and um, she was a real hero. She did a lot of work. Terry did a lot of work. I did a little bit of work. I didn't watch it. Josh did a little bit of work, but the baby, Josh was born, and, and we rejoiced. And, 
And it, what's fascinating is the convergence of things. So Wednesday, we're coming down the steps, and we just finished visiting Joyce. We're just marveling at it. Here she had brain surgery, and now, now she's talking, and she's eating all this stuff. And uh, who do we run into? Someone we hadn't seen in 20 years. Dr. Aronson, <laughs> who had delivered Joshua. And, and, and Terry recognized her. They had, you know, because we when the trippers were, were conceived and born, you know, um, she said, you need a specialist. You don't need me. You need a specialist. So we had, she handed uh, Terry to a specialist. So we hadn't seen her in 20 years. There she was with her badge on. Talked to Dr. Aronson, and just, I just marveled at, at remembering the work that it took to bring Joshua into the world. But again, it, here's our point. We're born because of the effort of somebody else, essentially. And let me tell you, we're born again because of the effort of somebody else. Amen? That's what the scriptures are teaching. We are sons of God. We are justified by what Christ has done. It's faith plus nothing. It's not worth it. It's also, it's baptism, not circumcision. You see, again, the issue was Jewish rites and circumcision, and, and circumcision had its place in the Old Testament, but you know circumcision was only for the males? The New Testament, the, the, the right of being part of God's people was no longer circumcision. It was not going to be baptism, which is applied to all. Applied to all who would believe. Applied to all who are part of the community of faith. Baptism. Not, baptism doesn't save, but baptism signifies that which happens internally, which is the union with Christ, the, the, the identification with Christ and his gospel. It's the outward sign of that inner thing. Water points to the cleansing that comes from the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross for all who believe. We are baptized into Christ. That's our identity. We are sons and daughters of God. It's not works. It's faith. We're not guardians. We're children. It's not circumcision. It's baptism. Question, what are you trusting? What are you trusting? Are you trusting involvement in the body of Christ? Are you entrusting maybe some good works you think are helpful to God? What are you trusting? The bottom line is you need to trust, simply trust what Christ has done on your behalf. It's the only source of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing, we need to, we need to embrace our unity because it says we are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. You know, the gospel doesn't just change us into children of God. When you become a child of God, you, your, 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 your relationship with others who are children of God changes. Your status changes with other people. There's a, there's a horizontal adjustment as well as a vertical adjustment. And, uh, and um, one man, uh, 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 Rhodes, Stephen Rhodes, says that the multicultural church, these multicultural churches where, we, where we, we work this out. I want to talk about that for a minute. The multicultural church is a constant reminder that spiritual maturity is to be clothed in Christ. Clothed in Christ. The multicultural church understands it's important to let go of the traditions that have now become stumbling blocks to Christian unity. The multicultural church is willing to hold on to the one tradition that matters, new life in Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of churches in our world, all kinds of churches in our nation. How can we have unity across the divides? Well, remembering that Jesus Christ is a source of unity. That's the key. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. It highlights that. One theologian, N.T. Wright, says the ancient world was just like our world. It was an elaborate network of prejudice, suspicion, and arrogance. And it was so ingrained as to be thought natural and normal. 
Walter Lightfield, one of my professors at seminary, he, said, he, he, he reminded us of, a, of the fact that in the Jewish synagogue liturgy, there was a prayer, a very famous prayer. The prayer went like this. Lord, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was, that was the Jewish prayer. You ever heard that before? I, I, that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. T Timothy George says this, that these three relationships, they, they, they cover the fundamental cleavages of human existence. Race and ethnicity, social political status, and gender. All these have been impacted by the gospel of grace. Let's look at each of them individually. First is ethnicity. Ethnicity, race, ethnicity. Some would say there's only one race, the human race. I don't believe in that. Ethnicity. What, well, just a couple of things that the, new, the first century church, the second century church, some, some, some testimonies. One is the letter uh, to Diogenes. The letter of, of, to Diogenes, yes. Um, he, he says this. It is not Gentiles, it is not th that Gentiles become Jews, nor that Jews become Gentiles, but both become one new person, a whole new entity, a new race, which is races. Th th you can hear the imagery of Ephesians chapter 2 in that statement by that church father years ago, for second century. Another second century testimony, uh, Aristides describing uh, Christians uh, to the emperor Hadrian, the Roman emperor. They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they, free, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit of God. Again, marveling at the, the way the early church related in love, understanding their solidarity and unity. And then Justin Martyr says this, again, another second century witness. Those who once rejoiced in fornication now delight in continence alone. Those who made use of magic arts have dedicated themselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who once took pleasure in the means of increasing our wealth and property now bring what we have into common fund and share with everyone in need. Sounds like Acts chapter 2, doesn't it? We who hated and killed one another would not associate with men of different tribes because of their different customs. But now, after the manifestation of Christ, we live together and pray for our enemies and, and try to persuade those who unjustly hate us so that they, living according to the fair command of Christ, may share with us the good hope of receiving the same things from God, the master of all. Again, some, some testimonies from the second century about how, how believers began to apply this very simple principle of living together despite the things that would, dis, that would uh, dis, bring disunity, of, of learning how to work that out, being reconciled. There's also socioeconomic uh, 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 differences that need to be embraced. Interesting story of, of two women. One is, her name, what the, the, one's a slave, one's a master. The master's name was Perpetua, and the slave's name was Felicitas. Felicitas actually led her master to the Lord, led her to faith in Christ. This is from 203 in North Africa, Carthage, North Africa. And um, <clears throat> this was a time when persecution was beginning to, 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 to break out. And so they both were challenged to, to, to recant, to, to deny the faith, to just worship the gods of Rome, as, as happened in that day. And they wouldn't do it. The slave wouldn't. The master, her, her master, they wouldn't do it. Um, they were warned, challenged, they were, they were imprisoned, and they were condemned to the beasts, to be eaten by wild beasts. It says, on the day of their martyrdom, the two women walked calmly out into the arena, hand in hand. And in that moment, 
the name of Jesus Christ was exalted. A slave led a master to the Lord, and they died together. That's solidarity in Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about, the unity that we share in Christ. Another witness, John, John Poulton wrote that when masters could call slaves brothers, when the enormities of depersonalizing them became conscious in enough people's minds, something had to go. It took time, but slavery went. And in the interim, the people of God were an embodied question mark because here were some people who could live another set of relationships within the given social system. And that's what we're called to do, to live another set of a different set of relationships with, within the existing social system. That's what the early church did. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus Christ calls us to do. And the third barrier, which has been knocked down and abolished, is the barrier of gender. You know, one of the accusations of the, the skeptics in Rome was that Christians were anti-family. Think about it. It, it. it was a movement that was dominated by poor people and women, was the accusation. And who cares about poor people and women? That's the way they thought. Now, again, you've got to imagine the audacity. Here, here, you have a woman who hears the gospel. Her husband's not there. He hears, she hears the gospel. She says yes to the gospel, but she doesn't have to ask her husband. She joins the church, doesn't have to ask her husband, and becomes a member of the church. Seems simple. Radical. Radical in that day that Jesus and the apostles would, would see women as equal and give the gospel to them equally apart from their husbands. Christians were accused of being anti-family for that reason. That's the radical nature of the Christian faith, of the Christian gospel, that, that women could be joint heirs in the grace of life, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 3. And by the way, when you ponder the, 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 the right of entrance into the body of Christ. It was no longer circumcision, which was males only. It was baptism, which was open to everyone. John Stott has a great caution about these three things. He says, uh, the great statement of verse 28 does not mean that radical social and sexual distinctions are actually obliterated. Christians are not literally colorblind so that they don't notice whether a person's skin is black, brown, yellow, or white. Nor are they unaware of the cultural and educational background from which people come. Nor do they ignore a person's sex, treating women as if she were a man and a man as if he were a woman. Of course, every person belongs to a certain race and nation, has been nurtured in a particular culture, is either male or female. And when we say that Christ has abolished these distinctions, we, we do not mean they don't exist, but that they don't matter. They're still there, but they no longer create barriers to fellowship. We recognize each other as equals, brothers and sisters in Christ. By the grace of God, we resist the temptation to despise one another or patronize one another, for we know ourselves to all be one person in Jesus Christ. John Stott's right, as he always seems to be. And so how does that get worked out? The New Testament pattern is that Jews and Gentiles with one voice would glorify the God in local congregations. And yet, if you look at the history of the church, particularly the church in America, as, as Bill pointed out earlier, the most segregated hour of the week seven, is 11 o'clock, Sunday mornings. Th three books. One book uh, uh, is called Divided by Faith by Emerson and Smith. And it talks about this issue of, of the problem of race in America and how the church has not helped it but hurt it. Historically, great book, 
if these issues are new to you, you need to pick up that book and, and work your way through it. Emerson did, did another book in response to the, of, to the, the response to that book. It was called United by Faith. Divided by Faith? United by Faith. United by Faith profiles um, the, the multiracial church as a solution to the race problem in America. Again, less than 10% of churches are multiracial. But the thesis is that the, 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 this, this, the church in America to survive needs to promote multiracial churches. Not because of any sociological reasons, but because it's biblical. It seems that in the Bible, Jews and Gentiles all worship together in one body. They worked out all the differences somewhat. You can look at Corinthians. They didn't work out a lot of them. They just had a lot of them. <laughs> but that was, that's the New Testament pattern. United by Faith talks about that. We've talked about that book before. A third book came out last year. I thought it was very helpful. Um, by uh, Josh Davis and Nikki Lerner. Nikki Lerner is from uh, Bridgeway Church. I know her personally. But it was called Worshiping Together. Worshiping Together. And um, it, it, it's, it's really it's talking to worship teams and worship leaders, but there's great principles there that I believe are, are, will help any church that's seeking to do multiracial church, not just multiracial worship. She had, in, in one of the chapters, uh, uh, Josh Davis has uh, some great insights into what are, the, what are the kind of things that churches need to be aware of because if you're not aware of them, you're going to feel uncomfortable either with yourself or, or usually with others in the church because not only do we have the normal quirks and differences and perspectives that we bring, when a church becomes a, a, a multiracial church, you begin to have cultural differences and cultural distinctives that can really cause interesting feelings and interesting discussions <laughs> if you are not uh, alert to it. Five things that I, that I think are very helpful. One is he says that um, you need to be aware of the time versus the event orientation of people and of cultures. Some people are very, very, are very conscious of time and others are more conscious of events. Now the people who are conscious of time, they say, I'm time conscious and you're late. I'm time conscious, and you're not time conscious. What's wrong with you? And they, and they have reasons why they think you should be time conscious. The person who's event-oriented says, why are you so concerned about the event? I, I, I'm, I, I'm concerned about people. I'm doing, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll, I'll get there. Those things can cause great conflict when you're trying to do multiracial church, where people bring their different perspectives, their different cultural patterns to the table. It can cause tension. They can cause, they can cause people to, 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 to hit the exit button. So you need to be alert to those things. The second thing is somewhat related. Um, he says the, the, the distinction between relationship versus task. You've probably heard this before. Rela some people are very relational. They want to talk. They want to they're, they're into the relationships and they, they, they notice everything about people. And others, they want, to do, they want to get things done. People slow them down. They're, they're task-oriented. I see some couples that are saying, yeah, that's you. Yeah. God does that, by the way. My wife's very different than I am. That's because we complement one another. That's the way that works. But that can cause tension in the multiracial church, in any church, but particularly the multiracial church when you don't just have personal difference, you have cultural differences, or subcultural differences. The third is what he called power distance dynamics of leadership. Power distance. Now, what does it mean? Some people, they think the leader should be honored, respected, and, 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 and should be lifted high. And that's the cultural pattern. Others believe that the leaders, leaders should be with the people and just, just hang out. That can cause difference of expectations about what happens. 
and what church should be like. And of course, we can all find our Bible verses to show, to prove our position, can't we? That's what makes it even more interesting. The, the fourth distinction, dynamic, is context versus content. Some people are very much into content, and, and others less concerned about the content, but more about the surroundings, the, the context. Some of you are very, you, 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 you love the, 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 the murals on the banners on the wall, and you love the stained glass, and you love, well, the organ doesn't work, but there's an organ back there, actually, but you love the, the, the ambiance of the room, and, and, you'll, and you'll tolerate some of the content that you hear. <laughs> and others, you don't care about it. You want to know that the gospel is preached. We, we, we bring different things, different preferences, different cultural perspectives to the table, and they can cause things to blow up if we don't relate and, and, and love each other and help each other through that. And the last one is communication styles. Some people believe in direct communication styles, and some people believe in indirect communication styles. And that can really get messy. He didn't say clear enough. He didn't say things like that. And I think the multiracial church, if it's to be the multiracial church that God wants it to be, it, it's not just showing up and worshiping together on Sundays. It's getting down and dirty and get to figure out how we do all these things and love each other despite all these things. It's in your community groups. Hope you're joining a group yet already. We're going to join one if your group hasn't met yet. Where you learn to really get deep underneath the skin and figure out, then, you know, why does that make me uncomfortable? Why does that parenting style feel weird to me? You, you, you ask that question before you say, that's wrong. That's what we're talking about, the dynamics of multiracial church. And the last thing, quickly, is the embracing of our destinies in Christ. We share a destiny. We're children of Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. God said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you a great nation who will bless you. We'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham believed that promise, God blessed him. And then later, chapter 15, God, God establishes the covenant with him, teaches him about the covenant. And, and then in chapter 17, he circumcises his son. One, one um, commentator says, the Jews were convinced that the term seed, offspring, referred to the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. Therefore, they believed it was absolutely necessary to belong to the Jewish nation in order to receive the blessings promised to Abraham. But it's no longer necessary to be in the Jewish nation to be a recipient of the promises. It's only necessary to be in Christ. In Christ. But you know, there's a contrast in those verses earlier in the chapter between Moses, the law, and Abraham, promise. And Paul summarizes it in a couple ways. He says that the promise preceded the law. The promise came before Moses. Moses was 430 years after Abraham, roughly, uh, looking at Exodus chapter 12. In verse 40, he names it, say, cites that here in this chapter earlier. He also says that the inheritance is for the offspring, singular, and not for the offsprings, plural. And what he's getting at is the, the inheritance is for Jesus Christ, for Abraham, but also for Jesus Christ. And those who are in Christ receive the blessings of the inheritance. That, that's that, Paul believed in the authority of Scripture to, to, to the plural. That's how strong we believe in Scripture. He said it wasn't singular, it was singular, not plural. Our destiny. What is the future for God's people, those who are in the promises of God, those who experience 
the promised land. There's an old hymn he's growing up. I am bound for the promised land. Who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Talk about the land of heaven, the land where, where will I see my father's face and in his bosom rest. That's, that's the, the, ver, the verses of that song just come to me. Revelation 7, 9 and 12. This is the vision. This is the dream that John had. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. There it is. Standing before the throne, before the Lamb, wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How do you get an inheritance? A couple things have to happen. First, you have to be a true child. You have to be a child to get the, parent, the parental, parental inheritance. And, sec, and, and, and we are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We'll be born again. And, and how, how, what else has to happen before you get your inheritance? It has to be a death. The death, the will is read, and then you receive what you... There has been a death. Jesus Christ died that we might have the inheritance. The work's been done. Rest in your inheritance. If you believe in Christ... It's grounded in the justification that Jesus Christ did for you and for me. Rest in that. It's not grounded in your performance. It's not grounded in your keeping of the law, keeping of any, any works. It's grounded in what Christ has done. Milne ends his book, I'm going to end it with the same way he ended his book in this lesson, this, this sermon, mimicking the fact that, that King had a dream and Milne had a dream, and I hope we share this dream I have a dream of a congregation where all people of all colors from every ethnic identity find welcome, warmth, dignity, and a sense of belonging. I have a dream of a church where men and women worship the triune God and serve together as equally valuable in the sight of God and equal in their capacity to honor Him. I have a dream of a Christian community where children, youth, middle-aged and seniors, boomers, busters, Gen Xers, millennials, Learn to respect and love and discover their profound need for each other, where people from all wealth and power backgrounds can live and relate and laugh together. I have a dream of a family where singles and married couples and married couples with families and single parents and divorcees are all affirmed in their worth before God and his people. A family where poor and rich, sophisticated and unsophisticated, the physically and mentally strong, the physically and mentally challenged, have learned to walk together in love and to appreciate and affirm each other. I have a dream of a people of God where differences of personality and huge diversities of spiritual stories and spiritual journeys, or the lack of them, are no barrier to acceptance. I have a dream of all that many-colored and multi-textured humanity uniting under the conscious, blessed rule of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ through his living, liberating, energizing word, joining in wonderful communion in his worship, in their worship, along with the saints and angels. I have a dream of that same exuberant, multicolored family, swept along by the Holy Spirit, streaming forth from their worship place into the community around them, to throw their arms around it and hug it to their hearts, offering to all who have need the practical ministries of love, to the poor and the homeless, single parents, street kids, HIV AIDS sufferers, the addicted, sharing to the joyous good news of Jesus and his great salvation with the lost and lonely, the affluent, the power brokers, the cynics, the seekers, the young, the aged, the followers of other faith traditions even, and the followers of none, local residents, those from every corner of the globe, lifting high the world's only Savior and doing so 
in such a way that it's his holy, all-embracing, transforming love that is reflected and authenticated in the dynamic diversity of life, of their life together. May it be so for us. Let's pray. Oh, we're, we're, we're safe because of what Christ has done. And that changes our relationships. We have a commitment to each other. We have that relationship with you. May, may, we, may we live that out. May we appreciate it. May we apply that in our, in our lives today. Lord, I would pray for anyone who's here, who's still considering, still on the journey, still not sure that it's Christ and Christ alone, that his death is sufficient. I pray you'd bring conviction to that heart and joy to that spirit. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's close. Let's close. Stand for the benediction. <clears throat> May the love of God, our Heavenly Father, the grace of Jesus Christ, the only Son of the living God, the presence and the power of the Spirit of God be with you now forevermore. Amen. God bless you.